See, when you think about it, and what grace really is, power costs God nothing. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. It costs him nothing. But grace costs him his son. I said, I said, hey, power, authority didn't cost God anything. He, he is God. He walks in it. But he chose to give his power on this earth to Adam and to Eve. And they handed it over to Satan. The only way to get that power back of life and overcome death was giving his son, Jesus. Jesus became the embodiment of grace. 100% God, 100% man, born of a virgin named Mary. And he lived his life, had to go to school, had to learn to be a carpenter, just like all the other men. But in Jewish culture at that time, you really weren't released to be a full adult to leave home as a man until you were 30 years of age. When he was 30 years of age is when his full-time ministry began for the next three and a half years. Walking, talking, speaking grace. Walking, talking, speaking grace. He embodies grace, the grace of God. What is that? That's the endowment or the virtue that God transfers over to those like you and I that don't deserve it. He empowers the powerless. He brings peace to the peaceless. He brings faith to the fearful. It's all there, just like salvation. It's all around us, but it's up to us to tap in to the grace that God has supplied so that we can walk in love, in hope, and in faith. You know, if you take a child and you tell them, don't do these 10 things, and you don't tell them the three things they did right, they'll do those 10 things and invent a few. I know, I is one, right? <laughs> but if you say, yeah, I really don't want you to do these 10 things, but let me tell you, these, these three things, if you could just, you're just crushing it with these three things. They're, they're not going to blow the four or 10. They might blow five or six. But as they grow and mature, and the more they understand your love and your grace and why you discipline them, what happens, before long, they're, they're, they're not blowing 9 out of 10. They're doing pretty good. Now, as long as you're on this earth, you're not going to get a 10 for 10. You're not going to be perfect. That's why it's not your grace. It's his grace. That's why it's not your virtue. It's his virtue. It's his spirit living in us, able to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. It's his grace living in us to give us the kingdom of God and the peace, the joy, the forgiveness, and the power we need, right? It's his life in our life. It's his DNA in our DNA. So Mark did an amazing job last week of just laying foundation for grace. I, I heard the message. I even read his notes. It's awesome. I'm going to go a different twist with it. And I'm going to talk to you about other benefits of grace other than just forgiving you of sin, right? Covering your sin or whatever. And the title that I have for disgrace number two is simply all sufficiency. All sufficiency. And we can learn from the great apostle Paul who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament about this. When we think about this series, Disgrace, the Webster defines it as a condition of one fallen from grace 
what? Fallen from Jesus, fallen from unmerited favor, fallen from your identity, fallen from grace, the condition of one who has lost honor, they've lost grace, they've lost favor, they become a source of shame. The prefix dis actually means to treat with disrespect or contempt, to insult, to anytime you use disgrace or whatever in a word or a sentence, it means the opposite of the word in front of it, right? So when you're saying disgraced, you're saying no grace, right? Now, as we think about disgrace or even dishonor, if, you, if someone has dishonor, they, they have no honor is what we're saying. What's it mean, disgrace? It means a state or condition of suffering, loss, of esteem during a reproach. I said it means what? The state or the condition of your, your being and your acknowledgement and your heart and your life. It means the state or condition of suffering loss of esteem and enduring reproach. It often it refers to humiliation, right? So what are you talking about? It means the state or condition of suffering loss of esteem. What is it? We have what? Self-esteem. You know, your self-esteem is limited by how esteemed you've been. <laughs> and thank God everybody don't know the secrets that you've been involved in and they wouldn't have any esteem for you. You'd be disesteemed, I guess we could create a word. But self-esteem is what? Talking about the condition of state of how you see yourself. But the problem with the church is we're so focused on self-esteem rather than God's esteem. We're so focused on what we can or cannot do and not even acknowledge what God has already done. When Jesus hung on the cross, he said, it is finished. The work of grace is finished, and he's at the right hand of the Father as an advocate for every believer right now as we speak. And what I want you to realize is that we need to turn our focus off of trying to build our self-esteem and tap into God's esteem. Because it's not your blood that saved you, it's his blood. You know, it's not your heaven that's coming, it's his heaven that's coming. You see, you can live with whatever peace you can conjure up. But I'd rather have God's peace because it says, my peace passes your understanding. In other words, God says, I'm going to give you peace in situations that's going to blow your mind. You're going to feel guilty that you have peace in this situation. What is that? That's God's peace or God's esteem versus my esteem. And whenever you're enduring reproach, reproach doesn't mean you sinned or messed up. Maybe you have. But reproach means people don't forget. You know, you do one bad thing in your life, you have 10, 20, 30 years doing great things, what are they going to do? They're going to come back to the one thing that you blew or messed up. But did you know that God can only forget one thing? He can only forget one thing. And he wrote it twice in his Bible, in Micah, and then also in the New Testament. The only thing he for can forget is sin that's been forgiven. He can never remember your sin. He chose because he's omniscient, all-knowing. He's omnipotent, all-powerful. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. But get this, he chose to say, I'm giving my son as grace, and if you receive my son, 
grace into your heart and become one of my children and repent of your sin, I will never recall your sin before you. He says it's like throw in Micah's book, it says it's like throwing it into the sea of forgetfulness. An all-knowing God chose to not have reproach against your failure and your sin. Now, that doesn't mean your family won't, won't have reproach. doesn't mean church folks won't have reproach. doesn't mean, you know, the, the government won't forget the reproach, whatever. But here's what I want you to realize. God said if you repent of it, it's gone. But we as children of God, we're so built, focused on building our esteem our reputation, that we want it to be spotless and blemished, like we keep our word, we don't do this, we don't do that, and then we end up doing it, and then it's, oh, Lord. God's grace is he forgives you, reestablishes you, and forgets it. Wow. Now, he sees what you've not repented of. You can't hide it. He knows all things. So when you stand before him in judgment, in the book of life and in the judgment, you want to make sure you've repented of sin. And that, Because if you don't repent of sin, what happens, it lingers around and you are move out of the state of conviction into condemnation. Condemnation means you've been condemned or judged. Condemnation is like if you went in and you saw this, this closet, walk-in closet, all these items in it and the light's on, and okay, you go in, you look, you walk out, somebody knocks everything out and throws it in the floor. You come back in, the light's on, you have an opportunity to get pretty close to putting it back together. But if you go in there and the light's off, you're fumbling around, you can't put anything back where it needs to be. God lets you know that's what condemnation is. You can try to put it back, fix it, work it, apologize, whatever you want to do. But the biggest thing is repent. Because the, the difference between conviction will bring you into the closet with a light on and show you how things should be. Condemnation tells you how it should be and makes sure you're blind to the point you can't put it back. So what happens is that gets you in your head, your mind, and your heart, and you can't walk in faith. Isn't it interesting the way the scripture says you're saved by grace through faith? Grace is Jesus. Do you accept Jesus and believe he rose from the dead and accept him in your heart? You're not going to have anything but human faith. But whenever you accept him as Lord and Savior and you repent of your sin, you accept him as Lord and Savior, what happens is now you move into Godlike faith. The scripture where it says, Jesus said, if you will only pray and speak to this mountain, says it will move. If you will pray in faith, it will move. But that's not a correct translation. If you look in the original Greek, in the Greek, which it was translated from Aramaic, it says if you have the faith of God, you can cast it into the sea. It didn't say if you could have faith, you can cast it in the sea. So we're not out to have faith. We're out to have the faith of God working in our life. We're not out to build our own self-esteem. We're out to build God's esteem in our life, that he chose us. 1 Peter 2, 9 says, You're a chosen generation of royal priesthood, a peculiar people, to show forth my praises as the Lamb of God. He says, You're royalty. 
says you're a chosen generation, a peculiar people, a chosen. That means to be selected, brought forth, recognized. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Royal is basilios. It means to be kingly or royalty in your nature. We say, I'm a king's kid. You act like you're the pauper's kid. What if you really saw yourself as the king's kid? You know when Parker brought the youth over, he's doing it now one night a week with the guys, and, you know, he has the run of the house and the basement, the pool table, grills and all that. Steph's out of town this week, so I'll let my boy, you know, and all of his buddies, and some of you youth are in here, hang out in my house. But my grill was out of the pellets, I guess. That's the only thing I can assume because they were fixing hamburgers, and when I came in, everything was clean, but it smelled like dead cow fried and burnt up everywhere. For two or three days, I'm lighting candles. I'm, I said, I'm going to have to mop the floors. I guess it's on the hardwood. I'm taking trash out. Now, he can do that at my house, but you better not come over and do that to my house. It would be more than breaking and entering. It would probably be rolling you out and, in a hearse. So you want God's esteem, not Dalton's esteem, right? What am I saying? He's not worried about it. That's daddy's house, and I'm his kid, right? And I'm bringing my friends. What? He's my son, and he has rights that other people don't have rights in our house. You have rights, but do you see yourself as a king's kid? Or do you see yourself as a king's project? A king's pet, a king's toy, something the king's enamored with for a couple millennium? Or do you see yourself chosen, selected by him? Do you see yourself royal in nature, kingly in nature? What does that mean? Does this mean you're, you have a title of king? I mean, Mephibosheth had that. Jonathan's son, remember? King Saul's son and Jonathan. Haven't even gotten to my notes yet, but oh well. So anyway, David, once he brought the two kingdoms together, he said, is there anybody left in Jonathan's household, any of his kids? They said, this one crippled kid, Mephibosheth's over here somewhere with some folks. And he wasn't going to show himself because Mephibosheth was crippled because whenever Saul and his palace was being attacked and they were killing and taking it all, one of the servants ran out and fell with him as an infant and crushed his feet and his legs, and they didn't have things to put bones back, and so he was crippled. Now, when he hated David because he felt like David was the one doing this to his father, but it really wasn't as his father was in witchcraft, disobedient. You do know the Bible says rebellion is thus a sin of witchcraft. You want to know what witchcraft does? Go read the end of Saul's life. They're telling you. Anyway. <clears throat> So you can be a king's kid and then go wanting to be your own king too. But you can't have both. So he said, find him. And I mean, I'm sure he thought that they were going to kill him, you know, make a sacrifice in front of all the people. But you know what he did? He said, bring him in, set him at my table, not a servant's table, at my table, and give back everything, every piece of property or wealth his dad and his grandfather had goes to him. And you guys that think you own his stuff, now you're his servants. 
So Mephibosheth was wheeled in there or limped in there or however he got carried in there as a young man thinking it was the end and he found out the true king's nature. That's why David was a, ta- a type and a shadow of Jesus. That's why God, even through David's reproach with man and his sin and his adultery, murdering and lying, he repented, God forgave it, and he said, he's a man after my own heart, so therefore he'll do whatever I ask him to do. Now, he did some things God didn't ask him to do, just like you and me. We say some things God don't want us to say. We do some things God doesn't want us to do, but his grace is sufficient if we have a heart of repentance and do our best to make things right. That doesn't mean it won't have reproach with men, people, but if your esteem is based on what people think about you, you'll never have any good esteem anyway. Because they'll always find one out of 99 things you didn't do right. Talking to somebody. So I set that up to say this when we're talking about grace is sufficient. We just read, I've read over that for years and didn't really think much about it. It's sufficient. That means it's good. Let's see what it means. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Read a few verses starting in verse 7. This is what Paul is having a conversation with God as well. Paul said in verse 7, unless I should be exalted above measure by abundance of the revelations, because remember, he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. He was getting revelations that no one else was getting, right? A thorn in the flesh was given me a messenger of Satan to buffet me. A lot of people call that thorn, you know, oh, this is this, they go back, and he had pussy eyes, or he had a disease in his leg. No, it tells you there, ding-dong, what it is, a messenger from Satan. Is that that difficult? They'll go find one translation and that's not real clear. Oh, see, it's a thorn in the flesh. The thorn in his flesh, it felt like a thorn because the messenger of Satan was constantly buffeting him, coming against him. But you know what that did for him? That kept him sharp. That kept him praying and fasting. That kept him focused because he had to get more revelation from God than he had prior to overcome the messenger. Suffering can lead you to glory. Freedom can lead you to bondage. Do you know dead people don't have any rights? When they're dead, they're dead. Right? The only time most Christians rest in peace is when you're laying there resting in peace. Because your spirit's already with God. That body's just there. How do we rest in peace If we don't understand God's grace, if we don't understand why we suffer and why bad things, terrible things happen to great people, we know in part, we see in part, 1 Corinthians says. But in that day, we will understand in full when we get there. There's a lot of things God doesn't even want us to know. We couldn't handle it if he told us. But he wants you to walk it out and be dependent upon him. Now, he don't cause suffering. He didn't sick that messenger from Satan on Paul. He just allowed it. Why is everybody picking on me? Why is everybody laughing at me? Paul was fighting a spiritual battle that you and I needed him to fight. He suffered. 
He was beaten. He was stoned. He was imprisoned. All the, he became a martyr. Why? Because we needed him to. <laughs> yeah, I want to be like Peter. Oh, you want to be crucified upside down. Oh, I want to be John, the one that Jesus seemed to love the most. Well, that's not even scripture because it says he is no respecter of persons. He, loved, he was just demonstrating how much he could love if you could receive it. The others were too proud to put their head on his breast and receive it. You can only attain the grace you have capacity to receive it in. God's grace has no limits, but our capacity does. Growing in Christ is opening our capacity wider and wider to receive more and more revelation. Grace doesn't come through emotion. Grace doesn't come through feelings. Grace doesn't come through praises from other people or judgments from other people. Grace can only come through the gift of grace, the Son of God that lives in you today, and through that grace is the full embodiment of Him and the Godhead and the kingdom living in you. But it's like having an ocean in a small container in the middle of your chest. The ocean's limitless. You can take a huge ship and fill it up with the water. It won't affect it. You can take huge planes and dip it with water. You can try to open up here and open up there and try to flood it out into the world. You can't. There's too much. There's too much water. That's the way grace is. It's all sufficient. It's more than enough. But the only way you can access it is through receiving. And we can't receive anything if we don't have faith for it. What's faith? Knowing and trusting God. Hebrews 11, 1, right? Now what? Faith is what? The substance of things hoped for. Evidence of what things? How do I have evidence if I can't see it, Rick? I see it by faith. What's faith? Faith is whatever God says it's going to be. I have faith in God to know and trust that he's not a liar and it's going to be there. Faith is the vehicle God uses to go into the unseen realm and pull it into the seen realm. If you study quantum physics, you realize there's things all around you other than this little room we're believing, living in and with oxygen. But we have the container of faith like ocean in us when we were children of God. It's a seed. The Bible says in Corinthians that Jesus became what the seed for us and he had to die so that we could have eternal life. Salvation is more than just getting you to heaven. It's more than a get out of jail free card or get out of hell free card. Salvation is a, oh, what is it, Mark? The kind of adjective that keeps happening over and over. So it's an arrowist in the Greek language, right? The Greek language has four tenses, really. It has more than four, nine, ten, I guess. So it has a past Present, future, past. Present, present, future, present. Future, present, future, past, future. The arrowist is the seventh one that God has. It means it's perpetual, never ending. <laughs> Salvation, sozo, means to be preserving, not to be preserved. You're not, 
you're not a jar of jelly, honey. You're not, you know, wasn't smoked and put in a jar and thrown in a, you know, some garden or some some closet or some basement so that someday when somebody wants to eat something sweet on their toast in the morning, they're going to open your jar of grace up and use it. God has not kept you. God is keeping you. God did not save you. God is saving you. God did not heal you. God is healing you. God did not bless you. God is blessing you. He says, in the blessing is a blessing. What's that mean? It says a blessing and a blessing and a blessing and a blessing and a blessing. It's perpetual. It's ongoing. It's, it's, it's like when Elijah had spoke the drought and God brought him to the woman over there and she was making the twigs and stuff for her kids and the, the country right outside of where he was at. And uh, she said she was making them to die and blah, blah. He said, well, go first, her and her son, will eat their last little thing of bread and die. He said, well, go make it and give me first and then you guys eat. And we know that it went on. And when she did that, that they had food, oil, and everything they needed, water to sustain them until the drought was over. But the same woman later on got in financial debt. And when she's in financial debt, I think it's the same one, isn't it, Mark? Because there's two. I get mixed up. Take it as it is. If not, it's still the same thing. It might not be the same woman. I'm pretty sure it's the same woman. <clears throat> and she was uh, in debt, and they were going to take her children into slavery. She didn't know what to do. Must have been Elijah then, I think. I think it was Elijah. I don't remember. Anyway, but what happened? The man of God came and prophets, she asked him, what must I do? You know, you saved my son, you did all this. No, it was the woman, the widow, the woman that her son, they had a place built for the prophet and she had no children and she had a child, right? Blah, blah, blah. Okay, and then he had to raise a child from the dead and the Bible's pretty cool. So anyway, now we're up here in the future and she's like, what are you doing? You let me have a son that, you know, he dies and you wrote his dead, but what are we gonna do? Now my husband's dead, we owe debt and they're gonna take my kids. He said, do you have any jars, any containers in your house? Oh, we have a few. He said, well, go get all you can for your friends and neighbors. It's empty. And they did. I don't know. Some people say 12. I don't know how many they had. And the anointing came on it because oil you could sell. It was like gold, right? Use it to cook. Use it for your flames, your fires. Use it for everything. Use it to take care of your animals, all that. And the Bible says that they were so full running over and then it stopped. I bet she was saying right there, man, I thought a few would be full, and they brought 12. I should have. If I'd known that, man, I'd went out and got 100. In other words, grace is a provision. God was providing her an unlimited capacity on his end. The only limitation was how many containers she brought to handle his grace. Grace is more than forgiveness of sin. Grace is blessing. Grace is favor. Grace is provision. Grace is prosperity. Grace is, is, is the power that accesses virtue. What's virtue? Virtue is the one thing that all the other gifts hang on. It's like the tree with roots in the ground. You have the virtue of God, and that's where all this other stuff comes, the virtue of healing and the virtue of being filled with God or spirit, virtue of whatever, deliverance, all that, virtue of provision, prosperity, all those hang on the limbs of the virtue of grace. Everything comes from the grace of God. 
all power, all dominion, all deliverance, all salvation, all freedom. <clears throat> oh, I need to read this scripture, don't I? <clears throat> so let me say it again. Unless, he said, unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. He didn't say God gave it to him. A messenger of Satan to buffet, to press, to come against me. Why? Lest, so he got revelation of why, right? He'd been praying for a while. God, take it, take it, and finally got revelation. Here's a revelation. Lest I be exalted above measure. In other words, lest I get proud. Unless I get exalted by the people more than you want me to be exalted, God. Verse 8. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Verse 9. This is where the message is. Verse 9. And he said to me, my grace is is sufficient for you. My strength, my, my strength is made perfect in what? Weakness. And that was the revelation Paul got. Then it says, therefore, he said, therefore, most gladly, I will rather. Now he's saying, heck, that thorn ain't nothing. Make me suffer more. Give me some more pain, which that wasn't the prompt. We learned later that wasn't God's plan. But he said, if that's going to give me more grace and more of a measure of you, then I'm not afraid of anything. That's where he needed to be, right? So therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in infirm, my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches, in needs and persecutions. It distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, I am strong. Now, now, now the reason he says I take pleasure in it is because he knew at the end he was going to win because God's strength was on him. But God's strength's on him because of the endowment and the virtue of grace given him. What's happening, you hear me say it every service, what's happening inside you is greater than what's happening to you or around you. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in this world. A container of God's strength and favor and power and provision like an ocean is in a little container in your heart. And there are no limits to what you can attain from God through faith and through receiving and through loving and believing. Until you receive his love, you'll never understand his grace. You might be like me, preach 20 years and you're still trying to get God to love you more, trying to be better and do better and you know, make everything good with church and with ministry and do all these things, not realizing that was setting me back, not moving me forward. I was going more on my strength, my gifts, my talents because God doesn't work that way. God works through my weakness. When I come to a point, instead of pushing and plowing, there's times I should just sit there, okay, Lord, what do you want to do? See, it takes a lot of trust to do that. Patience takes trust. To be patient takes trust. When you know and trust God, he is who he says he is, he'll do what he said, and you get his word to it's a revelation to you. You can read what Paul said, but it's not revealed or uncovered from the God-like mind until you get it in your heart and you trust it. Paul was saying, I trust it so much, just let all these persecutions come. He was shipwrecked, snake bit, no problem. He is healed and went on and did what, the God, what God wanted him to do. But it's interesting, listen to this conversation between God and Paul. And, and he said, man, when, when he prayed over all these certain challenges that he was facing. So that, that spirit of infirmity was causing all kinds of problems. 
It wasn't just that it was like, oh, it's a pain in his thigh. No, it was it was moving and stirring up trouble against him and, and getting witch, people with witchcraft attacking him and pe- political figures attacking him, church people attacking him because they were intimidated by Paul. So what happened? That, that, that messenger from Satan was going around and stirring up, and it caused him all kinds of challenges to the point they take him outside the city and stone him and think he's dead and leave, but he gets up. You see, it, it, it brought, that messenger brought multitude of challenges. He just mentioned some, but many more than that to him. I bet many of you have some challenges today. I know I do. We all have challenges. If you're living and breathing on this planet, you have challenges. The key is, what are you going to do with them? You've got to get a revelation that God's grace is sufficient for any challenge I face. God's grace is sufficient. What's sufficiency mean? Sufficiency means having something in abundant measure. Having something in abundant measure. Abundance, that is the overflow. God doesn't want you to live from the barrel. He wants you to live from the overflow on top of the barrel. That's what God's grace is to us. All. Everybody say all. How much is all? Is there anything more than all? All what? Sufficiency. What it does, it gives you everything in excess of what you could ever imagine if you would tap into it. Yes, forgiveness and guilt and condemnation, you know, you can get delivered of all that, but there's so much more to God's grace. So, Maybe you have a challenge and your authority's being challenged, your faith's being challenged, your convictions are being challenged. No matter what challenge you're facing, challenges don't last forever. Now, I've had some, it felt like it, last 10, 12 years, and finally they break. Challenges are momentary. Challenges can be minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, or years, or decades until we get a revelation that God's grace is sufficient to overcome any challenge I'm facing. So we all face challenges, but no matter what the challenges are, they don't stay forever. You know how long forever is? Eternity. Yeah, Yeah, but my mom had cancer and she died. Exactly. To be opposite from absent the body is to be present with the Lord. How long she suffered with cancer, then it's over. It don't last forever. Nothing you're facing, heart disease, doesn't last forever. You're going to get healed or go to heaven. It ain't going to last forever. You know, the, you lost your job. It's not going to last forever if you'll just let that job go because God's got something better for you and prepare yourself. Well, you know, that marriage didn't make it. Well, get yourself right. Get yourself fixed. Get yourself and let God deal with you to find out. Get counseling. Get help. Get wisdom. Get spiritual wisdom so you, the, the next time you're married, you don't blow it up. Yeah, but it was him or it was her. It takes two to tangle. Yeah, it takes two to make a decision to get together. So if that's the only decision you made, that was enough. But what do you do? The way you leave one place is the way you enter the next place. The way you leave one church is the way you enter the next church. The way you leave one job is the way you enter the next job. The way you leave one relationship is the way you enter into the next relationship. It behooves me that even young people will go serious dating and they might seriously date 
four or five people before they're 30 for months or years and maybe live with two or three people or whatever and, and never make it to marriage. But what's interesting, it's always the same two or three things that they split up or she split up over every time. If you let them talk 30 minutes, they'll tell on themselves or you'll tell on yourself because probably 55% of you have been through divorce. I think it's higher in the church than it is in the world. But God's grace will cover and help you, and you can repent, and you can give it to God. But what are you going to do with his grace? You've got to get revelation. I'm not blaming, you know, I got fired on my boss. I'm not blaming my marriage blew up because of my spouse. I'm not blaming, you know, my kids have this disease because I'm not good enough. No, no. Lord, give me revelation. I'm going to seek you for it. I'm going to trust you. And anything that I could even think I might have to could possibly repent over, I'm going to be repenting over it. Because then it can't be brought up and I'll have a clear heart to receive your revealed word. Does that help anybody in here? Hmm. So you, you have challenges. We all have challenges. <clears throat> but the only thing that does not expire, die, go away, is God's grace. It lasts forever. Because he's sitting on the right hand of the Father, Jesus. And he's released his grace, his endowment, his inheritance to everyone that wants to receive him. Challenges are momentary. Grace is forever. Why? Because grace is sufficient. So as we look at this, as we get ready to wrap up, which means absolutely nothing. I'd like somebody to say this with me. God's grace is sufficient for me on a count of three. One, two, three. Say it one more time. Let's do it like Paul. Say it the third time. I believe as you say God's grace is sufficient to you, that those challenges you're facing are beginning to disappear in the name of Jesus Christ. Those mountains you can't move, I'm believing God's grace is there and your faith to receive it to move those mountains, the faith of God, the grace of God to move them. We know from Scripture, and I touched on it a minute ago, and I'll do this and we'll wrap up and pray. But we know from Scripture the only sufficient virtue is grace. doesn't say faith is the only sufficient thing. doesn't say Healing is the sufficient thing. It doesn't say, you know, gifts of power and signs and wonders or to win people to the Lord. No, it says the, mo the only virtue, what is virtue? It's a trait from God. It's a part of the embodiment of God, a virtue. Now, we can look at like virtuous, what it looks like in the Webster's and all that, but in the kingdom, it's talking about God's virtue, part of his morals, his character, his DNA, his identity. And he gives that to us, right? through the seed of Jesus, and that lives in every born-again believer. But the key is, what are we doing? But all those things that he gave us, all the virtues of love, hope, peace, joy, forgiveness, all those things, none of them are sufficient by themselves. None of them. You can't have, inherit the kingdom of God without grace. You can't walk in faith of God. You might walk in some faith you have about him, but you can't walk in the faith of God using God's faith in a situation with, without grace. 
I heard this and this blew me away. I'm going to share this with you. Grace is the only sufficient thing. Money is never sufficient. What's sufficient mean? Sufficient means I go in to a restaurant with a big buffet and I'm the only one there. And I keep going up to that buffet to buffet my flesh over and over till I'm brought ready to throw up. I fill up a doggy bag or two and I look up there and there's still more food. That's what sufficiency is. God says there's always more where that came from. There's always more. There's always more. With God, there's always more. God, have you forgotten me? No, you've forgotten God. He never forgets you. He said, I don't even forget the sparrow that needs to be clothed flying through there. How could I forget you? I don't even know how many number of hairs you have on your head in Matthew 10. I know the tensions of your heart, Hebrews chapter 4. You think I don't know you? I know everything about you. I even know what you're thinking about you could possibly almost do someday. But grace. Power. People want, people want power, don't they? They want money. Well, when you want money, the problem that is you're just going to want more money, more money, more money. And, and money doesn't make you happy alone. Billionaires kill themselves every year. Hundred heirs kill themselves every year. Money is not the answer. Grace is the answer. Grace can provide the wealth you need in faith in God and, and sowing and reaping and tithing and doing things he says and working hard. You know, you can raise the limit of your capability to have influence and to have grace. To You might win that lottery and then you can repent for buying it later. Amen. Just sit if you wait. Grace is the only sufficient thing. Stephanie, you know what she'd do? Call her dad. Dad, make sure you buy an extra couple of lottery tickets for me. We'll split it if you win. <laughs> That's a real father, right? I'm going to go buy the lottery tickets. If I win, we split. I don't know where that puts me in that. I guess I'll be a sinner with this, but I'll split it too, baby. I'm, all right. I'll, I'll, I got a half anyway. Whatever you got's mine anyway, and whatever I got you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Power is not sufficient. You can have power and lose power. You can gain it quickly and lose it just as quick as you got it. Money's not the answer. You're just going to want more money or you can lose your money. It's not the answer. That's not sufficient to you. Position is not sufficient to you. Most positions have a tenure. You work for a company, eventually they want you out of there. You're getting too old, right? Or, or, or you get moved out of that, that position has a tenure and ends. Or maybe it's your time to go home and be, be of the Lord. Your power, your position, your money, and your title is not sufficient. Your knowledge, your wisdom, your understanding, capabilities, and influence is not sufficient. The only sufficient virtue that we are exposed to, and Paul is telling about it, is God's grace. Hmm. You know the scripture I say a lot, John 10, 10. Jesus said, I come that you may what have life, and not just have life, but have it what more abundantly. Isn't it interesting he didn't just say abundantly? He said more abundantly because God has more abundance than you could ever imagine. And in him is all the abundance, in his embodiment, who he is. Ask God, the theos is right there. The key is, is your capacity 
sufficient or insufficient. So we're talking about grace is sufficient. What's insufficient? Because if you don't have the grace of God flowing in your life like you believe you should have it, there's an insufficiency of grace. And if you could open yourself up and repent whatever it is, you know, sin's unbelief. Unbelief is sin. What did God say in Hebrews 11? Then he say, uh, without faith you cannot please God. I'd say if you're not pleasing God, you're probably sinning. Some of us have more faith in worry than we do in God. We have more fear in the situation we're facing than the power of some person doing something to us than we do the power of an almighty God that could take this world in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And he's living in you. Not just abundantly, but what? More abundantly. The question is, is the capacity for you to receive sufficient to receive the grace God wants to downpour on you. Here's another scripture I read a lot. Mark almost hit it today, 2 Corinthians 9, 8. Further expands on this. And God is able to make, everybody say make. So if he's making it, who's doing the action here? You? No. God is able to make all. We know how much all is, right? All what? All grace abound toward you to travel, to seek, to hunt you down. God's grace is all sufficient. He has the sufficient supplies I need, the sufficient medicines and health I need, the sufficient relationships I need, money I need, anything to make me happier, joyful. God has all sufficiency, and he embodies it. And when he comes in me and I'm in him, I'm embodied with all sufficiency. And grace hunts me down. Grace seeks me out. Grace looks for Dalton. Where is Dalton? I got to give my boy some more. I got to load him up today. Oh, he's going to have a tough week. I'm going to give him something on Sunday. Oh, he's going to have a tough year. I'm going to give him something next month to get him through. Grace abounds towards you. You know, like Psalm 33, surely goodness and mercy follows me all the days of my life, right? Surely goodness and mercy follows me all. Go through the, though I go through the valley of the shadow of death. Goodness and mercy, goodness and mercy, goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. He's more than enough. He's more than capable. He's more than able. He's more than equipped. He's ready. He's ready, 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 ready right now. He's ready to pour out on you. He's ready to raise up in you. He's ready to deliver you. He's ready to save you. He's ready to fill you. He's ready to heal you. He's ready to provide for you. He's ready to give you that peace that you can't even understand. He's ready to give you that spirit, that river of joy, rising up in you in the morning, rising up in you in the noonday, rising. here looking for that problem and you got mercy and grace falling riding on your shoulder you got goodness and mercy trying to catch you and you're running towards your problem in fear and worry how do I run toward it you can't get it off your mind it's all you think about what if she leaves me what if he leaves me what if I lose my job what what, what if I get cancer like my dad had what, what? you're not stopping to receive the goodness and the mercy of God. You're moving toward, my mom says, son, why are you running so hard toward hell? 
So you might as well just slap me. What do you mean? You're running a lot harder toward hell than you are heaven, and you know you might just win. What are you running toward? You're running toward your fear, or you're running toward the answer? You're running toward your lack, rather than opening a capacity to receive more from God. All grace abounds towards you. What? That you always say, always, always. having all sufficiency in all things. May have a what? Abundance for every good work. Woo. Thank you. Have an abundance for every good work. All things. My God is more than enough. My God is better than enough. My God is not just good enough. He is exceptional. He is abundant. He is beyond what I can think. He's beyond what I can imagine. He's beyond what I can fathom. All oh, the revelations coming now. Revelation. You need some revelation. Jump up and shout Jesus right now. Come on, shout Jesus. <laughs> 